William Faulkner once said, the past is never dead. In fact, it has not even passed. I mean, what is it that you regret? What would you change if you could? I mean, what do you wish you hadn't done or maybe hadn't been done to you? Or what do you wish maybe you could do over? Uh, researchers at Northwestern University and the Chicago, uh, University of Chicago, Illinois, collected data from 370 adults in the United States with this very question, what is your greatest regret? And as they gathered the data, at top of most of the lists, or at least the most popular answer, was some sort of love that was lost or unrequited or a, a chance that wasn't taken long ago, some sort of misconnection. But the second most common regret involved typically family issues, some sort of family squabble that wasn't resolved or some sort of harsh treatment of a sibling growing up. And on the other, uh, on the top of the, the list, what rounded it out, it said were regrets concerning education or maybe one's career choice or decisions with money, parenting mistakes, and other health related regrets. But what's your biggest regret? You know, we live in a culture that says we shouldn't have any. You know, the cultural cliche, no regrets. And yet I've yet to meet anyone who's been able to live up to that standard. And if they had, I'd be real suspicious. Uh, one author writes, you know, no regret sounds great on TV and shares well on social media, but because we equate decisiveness with importance, and control. But to live proudly without regret is to ratify your own idiocy, <laughs> to take an unjustified self-satisfaction in your existence. Your past actions made you who you are, sure, but maybe who you are isn't so great. <laughs> without regret, we have no way at all to reckon with that. Regret, remorse, these seem like an unavoidable aspect of a broken person that lives in a broken world. But the weight of them at times can sometimes seem almost too much to bear. And this morning as we gather on this Easter Sunday, we have to ask ourselves, you know, what does one do with them? And the reality is this day really does have a good answer to that question as we gather on Resurrection Sunday. First thing I want us to see from John this morning is the dark alley of death. In one sense, the way it always was, the dark alley of death. Uh, in a famous published sermon that often gets passed around during Advent, there's this line uh, and title that says, Advent begins in the dark. Well, the reality is Easter begins in the dark as well. Maybe you saw it in John's text this morning. Mary arises while it's still dark outside. The sun has not shone. And John is using that not just in a physical way, but also in a metaphorical way. The lights have not come on. They do not know that their Lord has been risen from the dead. As we wake with the disciples on this Easter morning in John's gospel, Good Friday really does stand behind us, casting a long and ominous shadow over the whole scene. Jesus, whom Mary loved, who the disciples loved, whom they followed, has been murdered. And here in the darkness of the morning on this third day, all the disciples wake to this same 
ugly new reality that the one whom they loved is gone. Which in one sense isn't a new reality at all. I mean, it's new for them in this very particular situation, but this is the way of this life. What we love and what we cherish, including our own selves, will all one day end. We will all meet our death. I mean, this is the way in this age. It's a way of life and death, which is why we find Mary repeatedly in our text being asked why she's weeping, because she's doing the, the commonsensical thing that one does in this age. This, uh, this really is a veil of tears because of the pain that we're involved with. And as sad as this story is, as the re- reality is all of our stories end like this. All stories come to the same terminus where the people and the things that we love end. And this broken world and the death that it brings breaks all of our collective hearts at one time or another. And for some, this makes life absolutely pointless. You know, if you look at some of the philosophers of old, this really becomes what becomes the absurdist or the nihilist philosophy is if if death is real, and it is, then it makes everything that we live beforehand nonsense. I mean, it has no meaning at all. As Camus wrote, throughout the whole absurd life I'd lived, a dark wind had been rising toward me for somewhere deep in my future, across years that were still to come. And as that wind passed, it leveled whatever was offered to me at the time. In years no more real than the ones I was living, what did other people's deaths or a mother's love matter at all to me? What did his God or the lives people chose or the fate they think they elect matter to me when we're all elected by that same fate? The fact that the wind of death is going to pass over us all and all of a sudden the meaning that we think we're making in this world is dissolved. We're probably more familiar with Shakespeare's take on it. You know, life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets its hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot signifying nothing. I mean, death does seem to make us question what makes life worth living at all. I mean, is this it? We get this little bit of time, but it isn't just the inevitability of death that breaks our heart. It's that we'll all be taken into the grave with a casket full of regrets when we get there. I mean, not many of us will have the choir at our funeral sing, I did it my way. Um, It'd be much more fitting to have, you know, Johnny Cash or Nine Inch Nails, you take your choice, you know, crooning hurt, you know, uh, and you, you could have had it all, my empire of dirt. What does he say? But, but I will let you down. I will make you hurt. I mean, consider the disciples in this very text. We have one disciple named throughout this whole text, Peter, but the rest are mentioned. Christ calls them at the end of this text. These disciples who for three years traveled with and listened to and were befriended by Christ, their teacher. They shared meals They shared joy and sorrow, a deep camaraderie, no doubt. But at the most pivotal moment in Jesus's whole career, when he most needed a friend, there wasn't one to be found. They all scattered like the wind. And some did even worse. I mean, Peter stands here in this text today as one who not only 
betrayed his friend and teacher, but whose last actions toward him were an utter renunciation of even knowing him or wanting to be identified with him at all. I mean, he acted like one of those mean girls in the cafeteria when you come to sit down and they just act like you don't exist. All to save face. I mean, Jesus goes to death alone in the dark. And now the disciples are left to live with that reality and all the regrets that go with it. I mean, what they could have done, should have done, what they should have said. I mean, how does one live with that? How do you live with it? Because at some level, we all have regrets like these. As one wise brother once told me, you know, all we'll be able to say to our children on our deathbed is, I'm sorry. I mean, this is the way of life, the way of broken promises and disappointments and unfulfilled dreams, the way of remorse and regret, a bad track record and some bad breaks proceed everyone to the grave. And the disciples and Mary are left in their own minds holding that empty but strangely heavy bag, a bag of their own regret. As one author put it, the earth went dark, the women wept and the cross stood while the condemned man slumped, defeated and dead. Death had done what it always does. Death had swallowed him up. Case closed, nothing more to do or see. Dead people stayed dead. That is just what they do. And so if that's the dark alley of death, we see next the light of life. I mean, the reason that we're here this morning. We wouldn't be here today or, or any other Sunday for that matter if that was how the story ended. No, something new happens on this particular Sunday, the most pivotal event in all of human history. As the sun rose on this particular morning, it rose upon a whole new world. It really did. This is the first day of a new history for mankind where one man defeated the grave. And it happened as one, this one man permanently overcomes death, he ends that age-old story of life without hope. It really does bring new hope on earth. And he did it all backwards, not the way that we would do it. Instead of trying to hold on to what he couldn't keep, he gave himself away, even to the point of death on a cross. I mean, all life long, you and I have been trying to milk more out of this world than it is willing to give us. We have all been like Adam of old, that first Adam in the garden, reaching out and taking hold of things and hoping and grasping that somehow they will make us like God. And our stories all end like Adam's story. We will die like him. And like him, we will do so with a list of regrets and remorse too painful to fully face. And so we spent our whole lives fighting to be like God, only to die in the end. God, oddly, does it the opposite way. He becomes like one of us, not counting in quality with God, something to be grasped. He puts on and takes to himself a human nature. He empties himself, even to the point of death, death on a cross. And as he hung on that cross, he died as the first man to do so without an ounce of regret or remorse or guilt or sin. And yet, 
the one who bore all of our guilt and all of our remorse, all of our shame and all of our sin. And because he was not like us in that way, because he was righteous, the Bible tells us the grave could not hold him, that he now lives because God raised him from the dead in order to declare to the whole world that he was innocent, that he had done nothing wrong. And that matters. It does. It matters for you. It matters for you on this day and every day proceeding, even on the day of your death, or maybe most especially on that day. And so I want us to see finally this morning the lightness of life. You'll notice Jesus says to Mary at the end of our text, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but instead go and tell my brothers that I'm going to my Father and to your Father. I'm going to my God and to your God. I mean, these disciples to whom Jesus had been nothing but faithful, I mean, he had privileged them, called them into his inner circle, showed them his glory and his grace, and they deserted him in the hour of his greatest need. His first order of business upon resurrection is to tell Mary, go and tell them this good news. Not just to hear that he is risen, but what that resurrection means for them. Not just that he's alive, but that him being alive has something to say about them and about their future and their current identity. Notice what he says, tell my brothers, you know, not my traitors or my enemies or those cowards who weren't with me, but my own flesh and blood of the same family. Tell them I'm going to my father and their father, my God and their God. Notice Jesus is telling them because of his resurrection that they are united in such a way that Jesus and the disciples are joined in such a way that what is Jesus's is now theirs. That what he possesses in resurrection, now they possess as well. His father is their father. His God is their God. I mean, how is that possible? Well, it's possible because he lived a life that no one else lived. A life that required no regret. He died a death that you and I could not bear. And that he took the very wrath of God upon himself to cancel out all that you regret. All the remorse that you have. All the debt that you've accumulated. And he rose from the grave as proof that God accepts him as righteous and accepts the sacrifice that he's given. And though he did it all alone, deserted by all, he shares it with all who believe. His God is now their God by gift. His father is now their father by divine right. But of course, it goes beyond that. Jesus gives them everything that is his. He declares that his righteousness is your righteousness. 
and that his resurrection will be your resurrection as well. I mean, brothers and sisters, this really is everything. This is the cash value of Easter, if you will. He lives, yes, that is a wonderful thing. Christ is risen indeed. But that means you will be risen indeed. It changes everything. Because what is his is now yours. I mean, does it make all your problems go away? I I wish that were the case. Does it make it now to where you'll never do anything that you regret? Probably not. I mean, will you go to your grave without a stitch of remorse? Uh, It's not probable. It does not take sadness away. But those things no longer get the last word over our lives. You see, up to this point, this was it for us. We had to sit with our mistakes and our remorse and our regret and live with them forever. When that chapter ended, your identity was who you were and nothing more. The life that you lived and nothing else. And none of us have lived enough of a life to hang our hat on for all eternity. And none of us could bear the awful load of dealing with our sins for all of eternity. But now your future is no longer determined by your past. Your sinful past with its trail of brokenness is no longer writing the script for how your future will be. And there is good news to be found here. I mean, Jesus deniers like Peter become leaders in his church. The weeping Mary is given joy, and not just joy temporarily, but everlasting joy. The sinful are made Christ's family, and not the kind of family that you're ashamed of and you don't want people to meet, you know, when you're in the courting phase, but actual family. And the nameless are given names eternally. As Luther wrote, let no one mourn that has fallen again and again. Let no one mourn who has fallen again and again, for forgiveness has risen from the grave. You see, from this tomb springs second chances, and third and fourth, and 70 times seven's worth of second chances. You see, it's not just Jesus that rose from the grave on this Lord's day. You did as well. The Bible tells us that we were buried with him in that tomb in our baptism, that we were raised in newness of life. And the life that we have is this life, the resurrection life of Jesus. You have risen indeed. You are dripping in the victory of Christ. His Father is yours. His God is yours. All He has is yours. And I know it's hard to believe and it's even harder to see, especially if you know any other human beings that claim Christianity. But on this Easter day, as the light of the new creation is rising on this old world after thousands of years of utter darkness and despair, it may take some time for our eyes to adjust indeed. And it may defy our experience and our reason because for us, our past is not even past. It's hard for us to view ourselves by anything other than the script we've written by our own actions. To define ourselves by the list of regrets and remorse that we hold. 
But this is the reality of life after Christ's resurrection. That just like the grave could not hold him because he is righteous, the grave will not be able to hold you because you are as righteous as he is. Even now. Because what is his is yours. It's true, you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. As one author writes, have you come to the tomb early? Rejoice. Have you come late? Rejoice. Have you come to remember the dead? You can rejoice. Have you come to seek the living? Rejoice. Have you come to escape your sin? Rejoice. Have you come to find forgiveness? Rejoice. Have you come looking for something to believe in? Rejoice. No matter how you have come, rejoice for Jesus lives. He lives for you. He lives. And therefore you shall live. As Faulkner said, the past is never dead. It is not even past. But that's not true. Your past is dead. Buried with Christ in the tomb, and the one thing that isn't getting resurrected is that old man. He's dead and buried and gone forever. And your new life that is now united to Christ has hardly just begun. And it will be a life that you never have to say sorry for, that you never have to wake up with a pit in your stomach, concerned about what others are going to think, because it will always be faultless, because your life is hidden in the sun. May we find our life there this morning, and may we rejoice knowing that these things are true, because Christ is risen indeed. Let us pray.